And Larry Holmes picked up my phone call. He's like, Larry here. <laughs> and I was like, hey, Mr. Holmes, uh, I'm with the New York Times. I'm working on this piece about uh, uh, Bob Bozick. And he was like, Bozick? Yeah, I remember Bozick. And I was like, yeah, what do you remember? And the quote went right into my notepad. He was like, man, I remember him. He's like, I fought a lot of people in my life. He's like, that guy? I won't forget him. I haven't forgotten him. I don't know if he was such a good fighter, but he was all dog. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is New York Times writer Alex Vaducal. Alex Vaducal writes for the Metro section of the paper and lately has been writing a lot of obituaries, which he described to me as a form of biography. So I think we started off with me asking him to write his own obituary. <laughs> but we want Alex around because he wins a lot of awards and... Uh, I love his connection to some of the great writers that the Times has had with Gay Talese and Joseph Mitchell and how much that informs his work and inspires his work. And we also talk about his dad, Max, who is a, a you know, wonderful photographer with an incredible journey to New York. And, uh, and, and you know, I see a lot of overlap between somebody who's able to do so, something so special with the camera with what Alex is able to do with words, with his portraits of eccentric characters. And uh, I was one of those weird characters that he drew up, and that was a strange experience for me. I'm used to um, doing the portrait, not, not being portrayed. A lot of us who like to be behind the camera hate being in front of it, but Alex was very generous and kind, and I've loved uh, the behind-the-scenes glimpse he's given to characters that uh, make New York so special. So I hope you enjoy Alex Vaducal, this week's guest on Tourist Information. All right. I was thinking about you as I'm seeing recently you expanding your role in some way from city correspondent that I know you as at the New York Times to writing some obituaries, and I listened to some interviews as I was researching this conversation we're having, and you talked about how writing obituaries is a form of writing biography, which is an idea I really like. Mm. So I thought, setting aside that you are, are about to die, if you were <laughs> to write your own obituary, um, where, would you, where would you go if I gave you a few minutes? to just describe you to somebody who's never met you before, which seems to be the task at hand in writing obits, I think. Mm. Wow. Um, that's a great opening question. And firstly, thank you for having me, Bryn. I appreciate it. Um, I will say that's a tough question in a way because just off the bat, you know, you have to be someone who merits an obituary first, right? So uh, I, I, I uh, you know, probably healthy for no one to go around walking thinking that they merit no bit. So that's one thing just off the top of my head. And, and that is something that's given a lot of consideration to, uh, oddly enough. Like, you know, because um, there's an evaluation of someone's life. It's, it's very unusual, that part of it. But 
So off of that, I, I don't know if I – I don't think I merit an obituary. Well, let, let, let's but, table that concern, the meritocracy uh, of, of this, and just say, <laughs> I'm your editor. I'm assigning yeah. you three minutes. What would be, what would be the, the nut graph on, on, on Alex? Well, God, let's see. I, I would say that um, – it is a good way to put it, uh, a good exercise. Well, I was not born in the country. I was born in Italy and Milan. Um, I have uh, an unusual background, I suppose, uh, internationally. My mother is Italian, completely, um, from a family of Milan. Many, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, my father uh, is uh, Indian. However, he was born and raised in Kenya and Africa, Um and he his childhood was was spent there, and then he moved to uh northern London with his family in the uh in the late sixties uh, and he kind of grew up in that very very kind of uh you know outer london upbringing uh, of the of the time really kind of row house style cricket in the backyard with his brother um and, uh, you know, he was an awful student, didn't finish high school, and somehow he made his way into fashion photography, shockingly, really, changed his name, actually, because, uh, hmm. you know, no one had any interest in someone with his name. Um, it's very interesting because now there's such a, well, it's a whole different story. But, and he, he crossed paths with my mother years later on a, a super French Vogue, and uh, she was the editor. And, you know, it was kind of a, essentially a um, Lady in the Tramp sort of thing going on. And she, uh, you know, she 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 pretty much um, was curious who this guy was. She had to start to see his work and his name and his black and white style. She was like, I want, I want to work with that guy. And uh, they met and she was like, this is, this is Max. Um, he was, you know, had no... No finishing, no manners, uh, anything like that. I mean, she was actually appalled to begin with. And um, such began this romance between them and, and a letter-writing campaign on his part that lasted some two years. Um, I don't think anything even happened on the romance front, if you get my drift, for some time. And... Uh, mm. You know, and then I was conceived by accident. Um, well, now I'm not giving you a nut graph. I'm giving you a fucking biography. So I, I wanted a biography. No, no, no. Oh, you I wanted was, the biography. Yeah, no, I wanted to. I wanted okay. to say, you know, we've gone you were, from mag, we've gone from newspaper nut graph to magazine, but I can keep going. If it's, but but uh, let's say let's say you're yeah. allocated, you know, five pages. You okay? So we're yeah. on like page two or three now. You know, let's say we're at page one and a half or so. But okay, I mean, this page one and a half. I, and and I just want to pause, just if if you yeah. could expand okay. one little thing with absolutely with your dad with changing his name. And I know yeah. this, I know this a little bit with my mother coming over at sixteen as a refugee yeah. from the Hungarian Revolution. Right. Um, she didn't experience racism, but she certainly experienced a lot of xenophobia mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not being able to speak English. And being, I think she's 60% Jewish. Um, I don't know how much anti-Semitism was there, yeah. but but I mean, this was a huge part of her dropping out of high school right. and just not fitting in and desperately 
um, the moment she sat down in Canada thinking, I fucked up, I made a mistake, right. I want to go back to my family. Was that a, a component of your dad changing his name of Kenya to England and like just uh, from what I've read in a limited capacity, there's a lot of racism directed? Um, sure. Sure, sure. I mean, that's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, well, I mean, yeah, long and short of it, yes. Um, and, and frankly, I think my father has one hell of a story. Um, and, uh, I've actually considered writing about it over time, but, um, yeah, he, he, that is precisely why. And, uh, I wouldn't even say it was, you know, xenophobia, but we're talking a really just outright racism. I mean, um, you know, look at, uh, I mean, you know, you can read the news about those, uh, those musicians today, those old uh, British rock stars that was in the news today. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you followed that, but, you know, there's certainly in kind of working class, um, communities, uh, in, uh, in England at the time, I don't think that was uncommon. Um, I mean, if you've seen, you know, like this is England and such, um, but Max was, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, skinheads were, uh, kind of, you know, part of the landscape of his upbringing. Um, definitely, uh, and he has some scars on his body to this day. Uh, I mean, he expands stories, but I, I certainly do think that, um, you know, there was, uh, he grew up with a kind of hostility. Um, but I, I don't know how profound his thoughts on it really are, but I, I can certainly say that in regards to changing his name, um, no one wanted to give work to a guy called Maradukant. I mean, um, that's just the unpleasant truth of it. And, uh, you know, he was a guy who wanted to go into not just photography, but fashion photography. We're talking, this is the era of David Bailey and, and you know, uh, Avedon, if you've seen, like, Funny Face. I mean, um, there's a major conversation about diversity in the industry today and strides that are being made. But uh, you can imagine the desert. <laughs> it was at the time. I mean, you know, that was just not really... Um, such it was. So again, I, I don't know the tremendous level of thought he gave to it all. I think he just kind of looked at it as, as this is what it was. But he did have a an idea at one point, just because no one was wanting to call this guy back, Marad Dukan Chantal Alvaducal. So he was like, I'll call myself Max, and uh, he was actually being called Max at school by the kids. It's a dog's name, and they just thought it was easier. Uh, so he just he went by Max, uh, but it's not his real name. It never has been in his passport that's not his real name. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I talk to him about it, he's like, he's like, I invented Max, I created Max, I became Max. He said that to me, um, which is interesting stuff to me. And uh, he, I mean, the story is fascinating. He really could not get work. Um, and, uh, and it's funny because he never really talks about much of it. But he simply couldn't get work, and he was and he was a horrible student, appalling student. I mean, to this day, I, I help him with a lot of his emails. <laughs> and um, I mean, Grammarly can't help this guy. No offense, Max, if you're listening to this. But uh, you know that correction program. But mm -hmm. he could not get work for the life of him, and um, effectively, one guy finally took a shot on him. Um, a uh, maybe I'll refrain from the full name, 
um, just, you know, to keep it simple. But his name was Jay. And he was, uh, the way I've been told, like a shell-shocked Vietnam veteran. We're talking late 60s in London. And he was just like straight out of apocalypse now, just like addled, uh, you know, always smoking dope. And um, he had like a loft. It's just straight out of some 60s movie, really. And um, and I have to tell you, when I was in uh, middle school, I gave a presentation on all this, actually, because we had to do autobiographies. And I got into this whole thing. He was a pornography photographer. My teacher was like, you know, like her jaw dropped. But the class was pretty interested, though. And that's, what, you, that's what your dad did. That's what your dad did for a while before fashion. That was his first job. Yeah, and this guy shot for, you know, for lack of a better term, I mean, what they would call like smut magazines. Um, you know, the 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 more hardcore stuff. Huh. And it was the only job he could get. And he had to do all the dirty stuff you can imagine uh, that's uh, on set. And, uh, and you know, this was a time before anything was regulated and stuff. I mean, this is the 60s. So he had quite a quite an experience there, and he was a young kid, too. And um, the story is, is so wacky because this guy, Jay, firstly, he said, first thing he asked him is, how far do you live? Do you live nearby? And my dad said, yeah, uh, I'm very close. The reality is he lived like two hours away. Um, so this lie kept on for the entire time in which he would take this ghastly commute in the morning without this guy never knowing how far away he lived. But he comes in for the interview, and uh, the guy made it clear apparently that, like, you know, you, you consider yourself lucky you're getting this job. But his app- job application was bizarre. And I tell you, Bryn, I don't know if I'm going too much on a tangent, but it no, is a crazy no. story. Well, and I'll tell you, I've had to cross that a lot of my father's stories over the years, similar to the movie Big Fish, Hugh McGregor. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but I'm telling you, and same with the Bob Bozick uh, uh, a little bit, the Bob Bozick tales, but uh, the finale's bartender. But fu- um, funnily enough, over the years, so many of these stories, I've returned to them, and when I've come to try and check them as a younger adult, they've always ended up being true, you know, to my shock. Oh. And apparently this guy, Jay, pulled out a uh, from a closet a unicycle, a one-wheeled bike. And he said, if you can learn to ride this, by the end of the week, the job is yours. And uh, so the story goes. My dad takes this thing. He lugs it back to Enfield. Um, and uh, I think that's where they were at the time. And he starts learning to ride a unicycle. I don't know if you've ever ridden a unicycle. It's tough. No. It's tough. There's a lot of falling and bruising. And he took this thing into the little backyard, and he just kept at it. And he did learn how to do it. And he took it back to Jay by the end of that week, and he wrote it. And this guy was just on such a kind of groovy out there trip that this was the this is what he wanted to see. I mean, no kidding. And I had doubts about this story for many years until – one day, I think when I was in high school or something like that, and my father told me to wait on a street corner with my sister. And we're just waiting there expectantly. I think my mother was there too. And sure enough, this stringy, lanky guy, Max, is fucking bulleting down the street on a unicycle. And he appears in front of us uh, in the middle of the road and not only is he riding it, he's doing like little tricks. He's going back and forward, 
maybe a hop here and there. It never he never lost it. And it's crazy. I'm not making it this is a real story. <laughs> and huh. um and yeah, it's, it's it's completely true. He he I don't uh, I don't know where he bought it, but he wanted to prove to us that the story was true. And uh, I tried getting on it, I think, a few times. I couldn't do it for my life. So, yeah, that's how I got the job. And um, it ended not well, I don't think. At a certain point, he said, I mean, also, just to give it a lot more credit, he learned a lot on the job. I mean, you know, uh, this guy, regardless um, if it wasn't a Vogue set, he learned the basics. He learned lenses. He learned exposure. He learned darkroom. He did all of that, and it did become, you know, I mean, they have photography school now, right, um, where you get a degree and all that. This this was his, and uh, it ended, and I think it ended badly. I, I think the guy actually, um, I, I believe he, he, he even, you know, kind of threatened the blacklist, Max, like, you'll, you know, you won't work here again in this town. Uh, it didn't end well, and... Um, in effect, uh, yeah. In, in effect, that that was that was pretty much it. And, and I think that uh, my father, I think his break came. He finally got a loan from uh, from David Putnam, Sir David Putnam, actually. And uh, years, ago, I mean, years ago, they did a documentary on my father, and, and David is in it. So I can legitimize each of these stories for you. <laughs> They're sourcing hmm. for them. And David Putnam talks about it in the documentary. He's like, I remember Max. Actually, the documentarian, she did a fantastic job picking this guy as a source, right? It's a pretty creative source, um, you know, to, get, to go find someone like that. And uh, he, he he produced, like, Midnight Express and so on. Um, you know, he, he uh, Alan Parker films, I think. But he, uh, I think he's actually a sir, and he uh, was ultimately originally just – he was an Enfield boy who, you know, was just trying to break out. And in the documentary, he talks about, I remember Max sought me out because he, apparently Max just learned that David Putnam was uh, an Enfield boy. So he sought him out and just materialized in the office. That was it. Mm. And that's what hunger is. You know, I, I think you just get creative like that. And um, in the documentary, uh, he says, he says, you know, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about photography, but... You know, the kid just was so hungry, and I sympathized with his lot because no one else could really help him. So David uh, Putnam gave him a loan to come to New York City, hmm. and that was the start of it. And, uh, you know, the story gets – the story's fascinating. There's like sleeping on benches in Tompkins Square Park while in the morning taking meetings with Condé Nast editors, <laughs> showing his book around. That's what you did back then. You would show your book around and um yeah i mean it's a story his for, and his break was yoji yamamoto that was his big break hmm. but now we've gone totally off the deep end so turning all about my father's well, life history well why don't we just pivot to how do you do you see elements of his story and his rise professionally that inform your own story creatively and in terms of your drive and ambition and what got you know their millions of people around the world, I'm sure, who dream of one day working at the New York Times. Um, did your father's success in such a competitive field like photography inform, I don't know, it seeming reachable to you or on other levels? 
that's a tough question. I think that, I mean, the realm of photography, fashion photography, and I'd say, uh, you know, print journalism are quite different. And um, also, I mean, I think I look at so much how the industry he saw. I mean, with the media, they are media adjacent, so there's some similarity. But, I mean, for the most part, I'm, I'm comparing the differences between the landscape that he saw and I saw. But in terms of on a more personal level, I don't know, I'd say we're pretty different. Um, I'm much more kind of cerebral neurotic. He is very instinct-driven. Uh, I almost wish that I could borrow a page from him. He he doesn't, let's just say, he doesn't lose sleep over too much. Like, he has Mm. the creative temperament. He has that creative temperament. He has that thing where if he feels something, he'll just do it. And frankly, because of that, I'd say he's even, well, uh, you know, I mean, reading that email a second time makes a difference sometimes before you hit send. You know what I mean? Um, And uh, I think it's, it's two different approaches. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess in broader answer to your question, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I do give thought to his journey for sure. Uh, definitely I do. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Is he, does he like to have his picture taken? He loves it. He loves oh. it. All artists are self-interested. <laughs> They're all hands. They're all total hams. I mean, you know, so, I mean, he likes having it taken and several taken if possible. And I think he would admit that uh, openly. Uh, He'll probably listen to this. Um, But, you know, I think that artists are people who are, are, have a self-interest and, and, you know, they, they, uh, yeah, the the creative temperament's an interesting thing. I think I heard somebody say about photography that it is, the easiest medium for just any any asshole to get involved mm-hmm. with it, but the most <laughs> difficult one to turn a photograph into something that is clearly yours that you took it. Right. right. I guess to, I guess in in that writing capacity, you're saying like having a voice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if if it's not too much of a detour, still, I mean, on that note. Um, and it slightly answers your question, but if I could say one more thing about, about yeah. his career, uh, and just, no one ever really asks me. I have to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I'm not making that up. It's, the question does not come up that often. Um, I wish it did more, to be perfectly honest. But I, frankly, am very, I'm very familiar with, with his career and just how interesting and textured it is and what he accomplished. Uh, frankly, I think it should actually get a little bit more credit out there. Um, I sometimes, you know, uh, photography history hasn't gotten written yet, I guess, but um, I think that uh, a very interesting part of his career is how he got his break. And it's a very peculiar story because he owes it all to the designer, Japanese designer Yoji Yamamoto. And, uh, you know, Yoji, who... who I mean, it's just an icon of his own right, but he was always, has always been known for kind of doing things his own way, having a unique vision. And he, at the time, ad campaigns and catalogs were kind of a creative medium of their own. I don't know if it, I don't think it's really like that now, because now it's just about the Instagram, right? But mm-hmm. at the time, you know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, uh, brands, 
um, really kind of put a – they consider their visual output and particularly their ad campaigns truly as a creative form to its own. And that did happen in catalogs and, and campaigns too. And Yoji had very creative campaigns, and it was actually quite coveted to get one. And he – Max got – Max was assigned to shoot an entire Yoji campaign. And he was known to nobody, really. But hmm. Yoji liked his work, and that is because Max had and has an extremely distinct signature, and that is that he decided to completely make his signature black and white photography, film, too. And that's what he wanted to do, black and white, full of dynamic human movement, rich with the with, uh, uh, human energy and you know I I, I actually have uh, I've tracked down uh, there's a great essay Freeze did years and years years ago looking at his work and um, you know the the essay makes the point that yeah it's about you know there's fashion in it but they're almost not even fashion photographs and I think that is really what he wanted to carve out um, and so many, you know, a lot of his heroes are like the street photographers and, and things like that, Cartier Bresson, Gary Winogrand. Um, but he also had this love for the great fashion photographers, and I think it blended. But that first ad campaign, which turned into several, is Yoji gave him carte blanche because he loved this guy's black and white photos. And uh, he pretty much the campaigns were sent around. Max would go to a city. I think New York might have been the first. But Rome followed, Naples followed, uh, possibly Florence, I can't recall. But, you know, well-known iconic cities. They were given the wardrobe, they were given a budget, and the that was it. The best I understand is they were sent there completely just like that, and the whole concept Max had pitched the Ogeon was, we're not going there with models. We're just going to pick ordinary people on the street, just natural, everyday beauty that just, you know, sings out from someone. And that that was it. And uh, they just, you know, he would just, I mean, they could do that then. They would just hang out on a street corner. They, you know, there's no cell phones, uh, no social media then. Uh, and then you can ask someone who's up for something and they would just do it. And uh, that is actually how I'm pretty sure the campaign was done. And then, you know, someone uh, would stop on a New York street corner, agree to it. Next thing they know, they're decked out in Yoji Yamamoto and they're, doing jumps uh, and weird movements for Max in front of a subway entrance. Um, and he got these remarkable, remarkable images. And, uh, you know, Yoshi was pretty blown away by them, and it turned into a string of, of these in different cities. But I think it's a great story because someone took a chance on him. And uh, I think every day, you know, it just talks about, to me, that story evokes like, if you have a signature, you know, you have to stand by it. And I think maybe going way back to your earliest question, maybe that's one thing I do look at in terms of my father for inspiration because he was like, I want to do something, and I think I can do it a certain way, you know. And uh, it's tough, you know, sometimes it doesn't uh, – sometimes you can be kind of unpopular for that. But um, in his case, he definitely had a, a voice, I think, and he, he felt, you know, he had to scream it. Well, it's interesting hearing you describe it. I, I, you know, you and I have had some conversations about your dad in the past, but just um, it, it seems inescapable to me when I think about your stories 
as a city correspondent, finding eccentric characters around the city, I don't think of your stories as movies. I do think of them almost as like, I, I guess I'm old enough that my my grandfather would Im- implore some family members to sit down for slideshows <laughs> and, and, and bring out the projector and stuff. But I think of your portraits of people very much as, as sort of a, almost like a form of, of um, textual photography, like just catching moments in somebody's life and passing around the wallet photos to use sort of J.D. Salinger's image <laughs> from one of his stories. And I don't know, I wonder if you learned from the kind of information that your dad was gathering, like you're saying about ordinary people as opposed to extraordinary looking people, that, that it can be more compelling. This and that reminded me a bit of Caravaggio was one of the first artists to use models from the street, street people, yeah. prostitutes. If he's doing a somebody who died in the Bible, he'd go to a morgue and photograph or and depict actual prostitutes who had drowned right. and, and elevate wow. ordinary people as opposed to um, what was the fashion before, which is to make us all look angelic. And instead, he right. made angels look human, which is interesting. Interesting how that resonates. Um, but I, I wonder if we could veer into your work as a city correspondent. First, first, I'd really like to know who were the writers that were inspiring you along your path, getting to the New York Times and putting out these stories that you know is winning you awards and and such a large audience of people who I think, like like me, are just so curious about who you're going to find next and how you find these people. Um, well, let's... let's uh, wait, the question is how I find these people? Or, well, first uh, let's start with the writers that inspired you. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, and, the, and, course, then, and then how you do what you do yeah. at, at the desk. Totally, totally. Well, firstly, thank you for your very gracious words there even uh, just about my stuff that's very appreciated um and i will say I'll, if max does listen to all that he'll get a kick because this thing could be called you know max cast or something <laughs> <laughs> um i hope he gets a kick out of it but thank you for letting me speak a bit about uh about his his work that's actually very nice and liberating to do um mm. but i would say i mean i'm looking at my library right now uh, I'm mostly actually, I mean, yeah, I'm looking at my library right now, which is actually only journalism and nonfiction. I, I don't have room for anything else in here. No joke. There's like nothing else in here. Um, but I mean, you know, it's obvious, uh, an obvious one, but Joseph Mitchell obviously is a huge, huge reference for me. And I have his books here. I actually have first editions of his books, which I collect. They're like my small Bibles. Hmm. And I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking right at him. I, I got some beautiful ones. I have a first edition of Joe Gould's Secret. I have a first edition of Old Mr. Flood. Two of them, actually. I scour eBay, and I, I wait for people to put them up online just having no clue of their value. I mean, not that they're not, when I say value, I mean, these are not, you know, tremendously valuable, but, um, you know, you see people just clearing out their their parents' attic, and, and this stuff pops up. So I'm always stalking around for these, but um, Mitchell, for sure, and, and, you know, Mitchell has a saying I'm pulling it up out of a book here. Yeah, okay. Joseph Mitchell, at the start of McSulloy's Wonderful Saloon, he has an author's note. And he said, um, he said, 
These stories were written first for The New Yorker. For this book, I've lengthened some with new information, cut a few, blah, blah, blah. blah. Then he says, the people in a number of my stories are the kind that many writers have recently got in the habit of referring to as, quote, the little people. I regard this phrase as patronizing and repulsive. There are no people. There are no little people in this book. They're as big as you are, whoever you are. Hmm. That's it. That's a damn beautiful quote. It's effectively Mitchell's mission statement. And, uh, and, and, and I mean, I think that that's, in a way, I consider that like a mission statement for, that speaks for all good human interest writing. And I don't even think he should get a medal for it. You know what I mean? And I don't think he'd want a medal for it. I think it's just, that should be self-spoken. I think that good human interest journalism, there has to be empathy. Uh, that's a big, big part of it. So, you know, there shouldn't, there shouldn't even be a pat on the back for thinking of it that way. But I do think it's particularly well said. So Mitchell is a big influence. Um, and I mean, I hate to disappoint you. I, I, I mean, I really keep it, uh, I'm very kind of utilitarian. I mean, Gay Talese, of course, is a, is a big influence. Um, people who've written the About New York column over the years, uh, some remarkable writing in there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as wild as it sounds, I, I only have a few references, but, um, yeah. And then let's, uh, let's see here. How, how I find the stories. I mean, I, do you want more on, on influences or. No, I'd love to, I mean, I'd love to just hear, well, first of all, I wanted to know, how did you find Joseph Mitchell? Like, do you remember first reading him or how that came about encountering him? That's a, that's a good question. Um, how did I come about Mitchell? Well, I mean, it must have been... I mean, I think anyone who wants to write about the city or ends up writing about the city, you inevitably have to reckon with Joseph Mitchell's work, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, I find everything in retrospect also, including the controversy of his work, also fascinating, you know? And I I teach it in my journalism class. I mean, that, uh, you know, it's... that, that. that's even that's also a fascinating part of his legacy, really, um, and I and definitely I use it as very instructive. And it's it's I, I love first teaching his work, the students, and then getting to that as well. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that it must have been must have been maybe the Muxorley's piece or the Joe Gould pieces. I mean, you know, I mean, but those are such references. But uh, I read them carefully then, and, and you know. But I, I would say a lot of my references, though, believe it or not, are writers of the Metro Desk of the Times. I mean, mm-hmm. I consider so many of them just kind of like poets. Uh, John Leland is one of my idols. Annie Coriel, uh, you know, tremendous writer and reporter, not to mention awesome person. Um, and, uh, I mean, let's see here, Corey Kilgannon, you know, just – one of the most gifted uh, uh, New York City journalists in terms of storytelling and, and his eye for stories. So a, a lot of those people are, are the people I I look at a lot. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, with with Talese, I wonder, um, was he somebody, obviously he's so distinguished, um, not exclusively, but his work with boxing 
and, and it transcending sports with the portraits right. of Floyd Patterson in particular. Um, but was he somebody that introduced you to boxing or were you a boxing fan? Because boxing has been a bit of a running theme in some of your work as a city correspondent, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that. Um, I think I had a running joke uh, with my editor. Um, well, maybe it was in my own head, but I mean, there was a slight dance we played because he did let me write at least like one boxing feature per year. Hmm. And I mean, that was considered like, you know, the limit. Um, and uh, we did a few of them. We did a profile, a cover profile on Riddick Bow opening this uh, teeny juice and chicken shop in Harlem. And it was a lens to profile him in. There was the piece about Elizabeth Szilagyi and her remarkable boxing VHS collection uh, in her apartment uh, and trying to sell it. There was a piece about Bob Bozick, the legendary Benelli's bartender, and and who had been a boxer. And I actually, uh, Larry Holmes gave me a great quote in the piece where he, uh, Bob was this, is this, you know, downtown bartending legend and he had been he held the bar finales for ages he was the subject of a massive epic nick palm garden profile on the new yorker and then i got to take a crack at him with this piece and uh i didn't do something nearly as ambitious as what nick did but i did a piece chronicling his last days before leaving for um uh, what was it? belgrade i think mm-hmm. uh, where he was going to inherit this massive old family mansion uh, that was like taken from his family years ago. I mean, it turned into a whole story over there, and I got him right before he left. The piece ended with him <laughs> talking to me uh, from the phone there, um, describing the house and the ghosts of his family in it, and that was the kicker quote. But uh, he let me follow him for like two weeks before he left. I must have been like 25 at the time, just following this hulking guy around lower Manhattan with my notepad as he was just rambling off like, you know, amazing quote. It's a quote machine and doesn't know it. Um, but Larry Holmes gave me a quote for that, and I called him and I asked him if he remembered, because one of Bob's claims to fame is that he fought Holmes at the Garden. And uh, it's like they have the picture hanging at Finelli's, and it was like his glory moment. And um, I called Holmes and I was like, well, it could be a quote. And sure enough, Larry Holmes remembered this guy. Because he didn't ever, it's not like he became some heavyweight titan. Um, you know, he's one of many boxers who had a brush with, with some, with, with greatness in the ring. And Larry Holmes picked up my phone call, like, Larry here. And I was like, hey, Mr. Holmes, uh, I'm with the New York Times. I'm working on this piece about uh, Bob Bozick. And he was like, Bozick? Yeah, I remember Bozick. And I was like, yeah, what do you remember? And the quote went right into my notepad. He was like, man, I remember him. He's like, I fought a lot of people in my life. He's like, that guy? I won't forget him. I haven't forgotten him. I don't know if he was such a good fighter, but he was all dog. He was all fight. And, you know, I just printed it right in there. Uh, he just, he did not forget how this guy just had the tenacity and he just would not go down. Uh, and Larry Holmes never forgot it, apparently. Um, but sorry, I've side veered on your question again. Oh, yeah, boxing ring and so on. I mean, those Talese pieces are, uh, I mean, you know, those are amazing pieces of writing. I mean, they, they, I was flipping through one of them the other day. I mean, they hold up and then some. Yeah, they do. 
They really do. It's actually shocking. Why do you think that is? What is it about his approach to profiling? Do you think sets him sets him apart the way he does? Because I mean, I remember st- still being just blown away by, uh, you know, just the degree of access, but also yeah. getting into the head of somebody like Floyd Patterson, bringing disguises to fights, right? In case he loses, the humiliation, right? Um, just just this unguarded underbelly of a man who you assume by being heavyweight champion is one thing, but is so relatable with how Talese, without judgment, but just seeking to understand the person, um, so so penetrating and yet sympathetic. Penetrating and sympathetic. That is a really nice way to put it. I think that is, I think that's, I think that's true. Uh, I think, and I think that does kind of, uh, I think that Talese, you know, always tried to kind of strive for uh, understanding someone and and having uh, empathy in in the work and in those profiles. But um, I I mean, why why are they as they are? Those pieces? Why do they hold up? I guess I don't know. You know, I mean, meticulous craftsman, as is well known, right, and and been well studied. Like, you know, he's a meticulous craftsman. And uh, every sentence, as he has talked about, is like stitching a Brioni suit. So, I mean, he has that, but of course, you know, he's talked a lot about his kind of secret weapon as an influence was uh, fiction, you know. Uh, Carson McCullers was his his icon, his biggest reference, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. He studied her work meticulously. Um so I, I think he had that passion for fiction, and I mean, you know, this is this is an old story, right? The new, the new journalism story, but I, I do think maybe I, I think that's what gave Talese that particular signature, which is now commonplace, of course. And you know, it's not like other people weren't doing it then, but I I think he just really laser focused on that, and I don't know. I mean, I just I don't know. Do you think? Do you think? I mean, with what you do, finding more obscure characters how would it how would your approach be different if you were profiling like president biden or you know like major figures and celebrities like okay like riddick bow is heavyweight champion but the majority of the people you cover certainly are not very camera ready and i I don't mean in terms of their appearance i mean the sense that they're not so stage managed they're not so reared into posing for you and maybe even if they are you seem to get people in an unposed way when when i read your profiles of them i wonder how that would be different if you were dealing with somebody who is like i did a brief thing with tom brady by phone Mm -hmm. interviewing him for bloomberg about like blue light glasses or something Mm -hmm. which i know Mm -hmm. nothing about and i don't particularly care about tom brady but I was amazed at just how media savvy he is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like he wants to talk for 10 minutes about where I am in Connecticut and stuff. It couldn't be more gracious, but I was just like, clearly this guy has spent hours being coached right. how, to, how to deal with people. Yeah. I wonder, like, it, would, your, would it be an interesting challenge to go from somebody that really has never spoken to a journalist before, let alone the New York Times, to somebody – who's been covered a million times and you'd want to 
do it in a way that had never been done before? Yeah, man, that's a great question. I mean, I don't know. I think that in a weird way, uh, I feel lucky that I don't normally write about famous people. Mm. Um, that said, I certainly have, though. So, I've, I mean, I've done both. But I would say, and, you know, it's not out of any intentional posturing or anything like that, but I, I you know, I did fall into writing about a certain kind of New Yorker for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think, you know, there's, I mean, I'm lucky to be able to do that too. You know, I write for an organization that can can take some chances and freedom. So I don't think um, as much as I'd like to think, ooh, great that I do that. I, I think a lot of people probably want to do that kind of writing. I just think there's less, it's tougher now out there to do it. There's just less homes for it. Um, you know, I think that that kind of writing was once more commonplace, especially in New York, but there's just less homes. But at Sunday Metropolitan, I personally feel blessed and thankful. And uh, I have um, an editor who I've worked with him for years He's a remarkable editor, a remarkable ear, just a gifted editor. His name is Bill. And, uh, you know, he, I mean, we've told a lot of stories together. And, um, you know, there are some stories about some New Yorkers that are just, that we've done that are just a little, little unusual, a little off the beaten path that just can't really be put into, you know, a pitch note or, or into a summary. I mean, um, they do occasionally come around and I'm, I'm lucky because he, there's just enough trust that he will just say, yeah, you know, see see what that is. Um, and uh, I think that writing about those people, I mean, it's funny because sometimes I almost take one of the weirder, I don't want to call it a compliment, but some of the stories like the, about the violin prodigy or uh, Angela Mao, um, you know, Lady Kung Fu, who, who I kind of found uh, – this legendary martial arts actress and I found her running this restaurant uh, in Deep Queens for all these years and I thought she was dead and the headline was Searching for Lady Kung Fu and uh, which was her, her uh, that was the, the billing name back then you know and she was uh, like in the Grindhouse movie theaters and Quentin Tarantino like idolized her and stuff and uh, yeah we did this big piece on her <laughs> it took me months to get that interview um, in fact, uh, I only heard it from a tip, a whisper. A friend of mine who's like a total kung fu fanatic was like, "Hey, you know, um, these stories you've been writing." He's like, uh, "You know, Angela Mao?" I was like, "No." He's like, "Well, uh, you should, because uh, she's a legend." Uh, you know, I mean, essentially, she's referred to as the female Bruce Lee, and um, you know, he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, they say she runs a, they say she runs a restaurant." Way out, uh, way out there. And I was like, whoa. I was like, what's it called? He didn't know. And uh, that was my only tip, dude. That was the only fucking tip I had. Hmm. And no one knew. And I, I hit the internet, and I got a teeny bit closer, but not much. I finally found references on, like, Kung Fu, uh, you know, fan message boards. So we're getting pretty deep into the fandom pockets of the internet here, um, and people, you know, there were a couple threads out there like, hey, you know, because her story just went to a blip after a certain point, just vanished after the last movie. And um, no one really knew what happened. So she became a, she effectively became a cult figure, you know, like a cult, cult cinema figure, I suppose. 
And uh, I, I saw threads out there, you know, oh, Angela Mao apparently apparently still runs a restaurant, you know. But the name of the actual restaurant proved elusive. And uh, I think eventually I finally, finally, could be remembering it wrong, but I think it was, I, I just, just after throwing enough stuff into into the internet, I think I found like one vague Yelp review and it had a mm. comment. It had a review comment that was like, yeah, great food, blah, blah, blah. And it just made an illusion. And it was like, oh, by the way, apparently the owner used to be a famous Kung Fu star, movie star. And that mm. was it. It was, just, I, it was just like a drop of information. And I, was, I, think I, I, I think I remember seeing it. I was just like, found it, you know. And uh, I rang, and sure enough, that then begun this long process. I think the son is who picked up, and he was like, what is this phone call? He was, it was the last thing he even expected. And I don't think he even knew how much of a big deal his mom was in, a, in the community of martial arts cinema. And um, he, I, I think he didn't even take me, my call seriously at first, I don't think. And, uh, yeah, he, he was like, yeah, Angela now is my mom. He was like, what about it? You know, I mean, he, I think he was very, just didn't know what to think. And, and, uh, I think after, I think, I think Angela said no immediately. And, um, the process went on for a little and I just, I just kept checking in every month or so. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's really what happened. Uh, I just kept checking in. And by this point, I had told my editor, and he was like, that sounds fascinating. He's like, let's try to make it happen. And, and I would just daintily check in with uh, with him. And I think finally he was like, maybe they just felt bad for me. But um, one day he was just like, yeah, okay. She said, yes, come at this time on Sunday. And sure enough, I went there, went to the restaurant, and there I was with Angela Mao. And uh, and it was something because she was so indifferent to it, just didn't care. And I'm not saying she should have. I think that's actually, that, I mean, that's, that's what I'm going back to your question. Like, writing about those people is great because you're actually writing about them. You know, like, they are just themselves. And uh, the Violin Project was very similar. And, and um, I got this interview with her. And, and it's funny because after about 40 minutes, that was it. She didn't want to go any further. She was like, I said, you know, and it was all translated, by the way. The sum was translating. And, um, it, I mean, when 40 minutes came up, she was just all business. Uh, he was like, okay. And I was like, what do you mean? It was like we can't go further, and he was like, "Well, no, you, you, you know, you said forty minutes, right? So that's it." Because you know what journalist doesn't do that, right? Oh, I just need this much time, you know. But then you think it'll wind on, and I, I, I mean, obviously, I, I worked some magic on the spot. I was like, "Come on, let's talk a little longer here." And so I, I, the the conversation did end up going much longer. But um, she was just so indifferent to it. And then, you know, she told me what I wanted. It was a very just normal interview. And uh, she just, you know, she moved on with her life. It was it was just that simple. The reason for her disappearance uh, ended up being somewhat mundane. <laughs> and 
that was a beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. You know, she 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 did those movies just to make money and support her family. I mean it was that it was that simple, you know, the reality behind it. But we wouldn't have known that reality without speaking with her. And it ended up being a big cover story. And I have to tell you, I I don't think she even read it. I could be wrong. Hmm. I, I I well no, I don't think I'm wrong. I think maybe she read it later, but the son had told me, you know, yeah, I mean, it was just just another old day. You know, oh, there's a newspaper article about me today. And uh, that definitely happened with the violin prodigy, too, I think. Um, I don't think he read it either, or he maybe read it later. But, and you know what? That might, like, bruise the ego of some kind of journalist. For me, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm like, you know... To them, maybe it was just a newspaper article, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think journalists have a really heightened. Uh, one problem is journalists have a very heightened sense of, you know, especially now. There's this whole. Uh, I mean, I think for journalists, one character flaws. They often think they are more important than they really are. Um, and uh, you know, the truth is, for a lot of people out there, it's just a, it's just an article. You know, right. I always try to keep that in mind, like, you know, like that, that what we call nonfiction or what we call literary nonfiction to a lot of people is just a long article. Right. Healthy well, to keep it in mind, I think. Well, can we, what is it like, I mean, with getting somebody like her who disappears with a cult following, but. You know, the Riddick Bow article, I remember mm. reading that when that came out. I was living very close to there in Harlem. And when I read it, I was immediately just really depressed because it was sort of yeah. like he's opening a little chicken stand yeah. and there you can get juice. But like, what? Like a guy right. who probably, had he stayed in shape, right, probably could have made $100 million in his career or more. Yeah. And yeah. and in the end, like the times where I had sort of seen him in passing at events where he's yeah. probably just paid a few grand to show up and wave at people and take some pictures, it was pretty clear. I mean, he was obese, probably was 120 pounds heavier than when he fought. But also you could hear he's, his speech was slurred. I knew he'd gotten in trouble with the law. What was it like to delve into that story because I remember just yeah. thinking like who, this is before I knew you as a person but it's like what was in the reporter's head writing this story and how did Riddick feel after it was written not that it, not that you did anything wrong in it yeah. but just like it, yeah. it just you could see where he might be coming from opening up a new business and where the rest of the world would interpret it right. <laughs> including you and it yeah. seemed like there was a lot of distance between those two, you know, the reality and the perception. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that was a story. Um, that was a story where I, 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 I don't want to say I was like, I mean, I was younger at the time, right? I must have been like 25 or 26. And I certainly remember working on that. It was one of my first bigger profiles. It did run as a cover. And when I had that story, I was like, man, like, this is this is the kind of stuff I w wanted to do, you know? I mean, like, I had total access to him, you know? Um, 
I mean, there was there was no middleman or anything. It was straight to his cell phone, and he was happy and eager to do the piece. And yes, as you say, the angle was he had opened this little shop called Bose. I mean, it was the size of uh, it was a narrow, narrow space, um, and I think it was on 125th or near there. And it was just called Bose, and the plan was to make uh, like a couple of them. And obviously, that never happened. And I mean, the truth is, it was pretty much just a normal. Uh, I think it was like a chicken and juice spot, and um, it, it was effectively nothing too special about it. But it was branded around him, so his picture was on things, and and you know, I think there was like a smoothie named after him, and things like that. And um, you know. He uh, was thinking that he could brand something, you know, and uh, it became a lens to profile him. And I was not big into boxing at the time, and to me it was just a profile assignment. And it then turned into it turned into a New York story. I mean, that's the thing because it ran in Metropolitan, and that was one of the first bigger pieces me and my editor worked on. And I just I remember going to Bose, and there he was. I mean, this guy's big dude and i i was so tiny compared to him and he had his he had his big old ring hall of fame ring and and you know that ended up making into the piece and i mean i just want to say he was he was wonderful i really enjoyed writing with him and spending time with him and you know he uh i mean he uh writing about public figures is, is interesting especially athletes right but um the story really turned into a New York story because he, where was he from? Where is it exactly? It's from, Brownsville. Uh, yeah, Brownsville. yeah, yeah. And, um, right, from Brownsville. And uh, we went there, uh, uh, and that ended up becoming a big part of the reporting. We went back to his old high school. We went back to his old favorite pizza spot where there was, like, a picture of him on the wall, faded, you know, with his belt. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember this vividly and we went to the high school and, 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 you know, it was this big, big public school and all of a sudden we are approaching and this is fucking decades later. And the minute the guard sees him or whoever's it, everyone stops, you know, everyone's like, Bo, Bo, people were calling out his name from cars as we were passing by. I mean, and that's something I, I nodded to in the piece, you know, it's like, Maybe times were tough for this guy, and, and maybe the, the boxing industry didn't give this guy his fair shake. But, you know, in a certain part of New York City, he'll always be the king. And um, I think that was a, a really interesting thing to see. And uh, we did go back to his old housing complex, and, you know, that was something I remember vividly. I mean, the minute we walked in into the courtyard, I think it was a summer day, and everyone's just kind of hanging about, and it, it was all of a sudden all eyes turned, and there was a massive crowd all around him. He's giving out autographs, and this is years later. You know, his heavyweight days are long behind him, but, you know, he is the guy who went and made it, and um, that just doesn't get forgotten, and uh, that was really interesting to see, and then it turned into something else because, you know, then there were people coming out. Um, I mean, there, there were some folks who, who had a couple disparaging things to say. 
you know, and then once everyone found out a journalist was in the mix, that got very interesting. He he eventually wanted to get the heck out of there mm. <laughs> quite quickly. And uh, I remember we got into a car. He just looked at me. This big guy turned around. And he just was like, so, looking at my notebook, he's like, guess you got some good material there. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was something. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, so that was that was that experience. Do you do you have, I guess, last question before I let you go. Who would be top three people to profile to do what you do in terms of spending time with them, shadow them? Who would be the most fun for you if you just thought just just as like a sort of fantasy assignment and you had total access? Who would those three people be? Wow, that's living living people, living people, living people. So like, not a notion of someone, but like someone I know of already. Sure. I don't know. That's that's tough. Because, um, I mean, a lot of people who I, I want to write about, I have no idea who they are at first. And, and uh, in truth, like, I usually end up getting to write about them because I just kind of, you know, uh, try and pitch it to them repeatedly until they maybe think it's an interesting idea. But in terms of, like, public, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe I can't give you such a good sign off on that one. You want to ask something else, or you want me to try and plumb myself further a little? Mm, I guess another another question would just be, you know, for a young for a young guy that's been as accomplished and recognized for what you're doing at the city desk, and now you're teaching journalism, you've won a number of awards. Is there a sense like? Like one, you know, one of the mentors you mentioned, Gay Talese. Do you want to expand this into book-length projects and that kind of thing? Like, where do you see yourself going next, or or is this a comfortable place to be? Okay, that's a good question. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, I uh, I mean, I have a long road ahead, and I'm still learning a million different things. Um, and and uh, you know, so I'm I'm I'm. St- Still learning to breathe in many regards, but I think book length is something people talk to me about a lot. And I mean, I have to be honest. I like the um, I like the craft of newspaper writing. I like the craft of newspaper feature writing. I consider it an art form to its own. I really do. Uh, and I think that there's a lot to be said about doing writing a great story in three thousand words, which is considered you know long. For us, right, and I don't know. I think if every word and sentence counts, I think, I think it can be still very expansive journalism form in terms of storytelling. Um, so, and I'm I'm still just learning how to do it. You know, uh, still learning the, the the tricks of it all, really. Um, but I, I do consider it a, a specific craft of storytelling, and um, you know, I'm I enjoy learning more more about it with every story and figuring out what works and what doesn't. Um, so the idea of a book is something that, you know, is daunting. Um, but if the right topic ever came along, you know, but I would say that I'm, I'm yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I I don't know what, what lies ahead, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. 
Thanks so much for your time today, Alex. Yeah. This is fun to chat. Uh, Bryn, this has been just uh, a delight. Um, thank you for having me. Really, really has been fun. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>